Good morning. It's Patricia Murphy. It's Friday. This is Seattle Now. This week, the kids are not all right. And Seattle and Kent Public Schools filed lawsuits claiming the big social media companies are partly responsible. The King County Council will consider a proposal to ban all cash businesses, and a few Seattle area companies fell off this year's list of best places to work in the U.S. We're breaking down the week with GeekWire's Kurt Schlosser and the Everywhereists Geraldine DeReuter. But first, let's get you caught up. In case you missed it, the Seahawks start their playoff journey against the San Francisco 49ers tomorrow. The Niners are the favorite to win the matchup, but if you want to watch just in case, it's on Fox, and the kickoff is at 1.30. If Seattle survives, they'll take on either the New York Giants or Minnesota Vikings next weekend. After a three-year pandemic closure, the Northwest African American Museum is reopening on Martin Luther King Jr. Day, which is Monday. It'll be big-time fun with food trucks, music, events, and exhibits highlighting local artists. Stop by and see the museum's redesign. If you miss Monday's opening, check out the space during their regular hours, Wednesday through Saturday. And take some time to gaze out at Puget Sound. Turns out 2022 was a record year for whale sightings in the Pacific Northwest. The Pacific Whale Watch Association reports a total of 400 humpback whales were photographed in the Salish Sea. That's the most in at least the past century. The Orca Behavior Institute reported more than 1,200 sightings. Researchers say increased marine mammal populations are drawing more big killer whales to the Salish Sea. We are ending the week riding out at Atmospheric River. The coast and the mountains will see the most action, but we're going to get some wind. So find your flashlights, people, and keep an eye out for blocked storm drains. Adrian Diaz was officially sworn in as mayor, and Megan Rapino is right where she should be, back with the OL rain for another season. Kurt Schlosser is here. He's a writer and editor for GeekWire. Kurt, good to see you. Hi, good to see you. And so is Geraldine DeReuter. She's founder of the blog, The Everywhereist. Always good to see you, Geraldine. Hi, thanks for having me. So big news this week from the Seattle School District, which filed a lawsuit against TikTok, YouTube, Facebook, Snapchat, and Instagram. They say the social media sites have contributed to a youth mental health crisis and want compensation to tackle it. Kent School District filed its own complaint a few days later. The 91-page lawsuit is making headlines across the country, and the district says the intent of the lawsuit is to hold social media companies accountable for driving the student mental health crisis. Kurt, there's a lot to talk about in here, but I want to start with you because you cover tech and you're also a dad. How are you thinking about this? Well, I'm thinking that uh, Todd Bishop, my co-founder, editor at GeekWire, has to evaluate his own screen time because he found this story on a Friday night looking through court filings um, uh-huh. when the rest of us were out partying, I think. I would admit as a as a grown man to be addicted in my own right to social media. Um, I couldn't imagine coming at it with a developing brain. I hope my brain's done developing, but uh, the brain of my 15-year-old son is what I think about the most when I see him and his inability to get off of his devices. And it kind of hurts. And I didn't necessarily see this lawsuit coming, but I I welcome what the dialogue, at least that it will start. And I hope that other school districts jump on board and we'll we'll see where this goes. It certainly uh, opened everybody's eyes when the schools went after the uh, e-cigarette manufacturers. And um, I think social media in a lot of ways is doing uh, the same kind of harm. 
Yeah, it's interesting as a parent, I have a lot of thoughts about this. And, you know, one of them is feeling complicit in my son's social media use. You know, Geraldine, the lawsuit says almost half of Washington teens are scrolling on their phones between one and three hours a day. A lot of them more than that. And it's contributing to a 30% rise in reports of depression and anxiety. Wait lists for mental health services are long. Counselors are booked. You know, it doesn't actually sound that much different from our own behavior as adults. You know, that's exactly what I was going to say. I am guilty of this as well. I spend so much time scrolling my phone. And one of the studies, the verbiage on it said that Teens who spend a lot of time using screens are more likely to receive diagnoses of depression or anxiety. And the thing is, it wasn't singling out social media, and it was just saying kids who are on their phone for a long time. So I think the issue with that is, you know, we're not addressing causation versus correlation. So it could be that, you know, when we are feeling depressed, and I think this is true of adults and kids, we tend to zone out and want to spend more time on our phones. And I think that there's kind of this idea that we've been spending a lot of time on screens because we have to. Kids have been homeschooled for the better part of a few years, which is a huge percentage of their lives. So I think a lot of what we're seeing is the long-term implications of the last few years, and it's catching up with us. I don't know if this lawsuit is going to do anything in in terms of actual results and ramifications from a judgment, but I do think it's getting the conversation started, and that's really important. I mean, ultimately, the issue is how do the schools get the funding to properly address the needs of their students? And that comes down to a lawsuit. There are social media giants who have a lot of money in the coffers and who do bear some responsibility for this. Yeah, it's really interesting. Seattle Public Schools got a lot of blowback on this and had to clarify that, of course, this is all pro bono right now. No district money is being spent on the suit. Nobody gets paid unless the lawsuit is successful. But it also brings up the idea of media literacy in schools, right? We know this is an issue. And we know that social media and screens are ever present in our lives. So knowing that, maybe media literacy really has to become part of the core curriculum from kindergarten. Because we can deny kids phones, we can deny kids time on screens, but the reality is they are part of our lives. And I know the school district has authorized the superintendent to create these programs, but I don't see any money attached to it yet. And you know, I'm sure teachers are doing what they can in their classrooms, but there's nothing formal that I have seen that really puts this at the center of the curriculum. The idea of media literacy would be drastically important for a lot of these kids because they're navigating disinformation, they're navigating cyberbullying, they're navigating predators uh, that are reaching out to them. The amount of things that they have to wade through as children um, while managing their own reputations online. Yeah, I think from the media literacy standpoint and having that type of education in school, I, I think of the long list of things that I think I know more than my son about when, when it comes to that list. And I would put uh, how to use your phone at the top and he doesn't agree. I've definitely, I've definitely run screaming to my nieces and been like, help me, Generation Z, fix this. 
<laughs> I don't know. Well, that's the other problem as a parent works. is trying to implement controls that aren't completely circumnavigated by the smartness of your teenager who knows far more about how to get around your rules than you. Oh, they're they're brilliant. They set up fake accounts. I mean, they're all basically Cold War spies when it comes to this <laughs> stuff. They're so good at it. Anyway, King County Council member Jean Cole Wells introduced a proposal to ban cashless retailers. The proposal would require unincorporated parts of the county to accept up to $250 in cash for a single transaction. The plan to create equity, of course. It's a big help to people who don't have bank accounts, but some retailers are saying it invites crime. Cash, man. How much cash you got in your wallet right now, you two? Um... I, I feel like I'm making myself a mark by, by telling you. Uh, so my husband's kind of old school and is a believer that I should carry cash. Uh, sorry, please don't. No one's come up to me ever and <laughs> rob me. Uh, he is a believer that I should carry cash. He's like, you never know when an emergency is going to hit. That being said, I do not listen to him. But what I think is fascinating about this, because I was actually having a discussion with him about this, is he's like, how can places be cashless? How can you not accept cash? It says on the bill that (laughs) this is good for all debts, private and public. Like, you have to accept (laughs) cash. That is the fundamental belief on which our entire society is built. And so the idea that you go into places and they're like, no, we we don't do that. You're like... (laughs) How, do, how does this work? I am confused. And it's also potentially a violation of the Civil Rights Act, right? Like there are huge swaths of the population that do not have access to credit cards, that do not easily have access to debit cards. So I, I completely understand the argument for, but then I go up to Finney and I see a lot of places who that have been recently burglarized and they're like, hey, we have no cash on premises. Please do not break our windows. It's a kind of a dicey situation. I see both sides, but also the idea that you're not accepting cash seems ludicrous to me. Kurt, you got cash in your wallet, ma'am? Sometimes I do, but I, you know, we're so bent on using the credit card to gain air miles that it's like, oh, well, you know, (laughs) everything. So I'm, you know, I have all this debt now, but you know, back to the teens, they they don't handle paper money. My son pays for everything by tapping his phone which I pay for because I'm running that account or I have the bank <laughs> account right. that it's linked to. So I was raised on cash. I, I, I remember the Velcro wallet. Remember, oh, he's getting some, <laughs> get some cash out. <laughs> now I don't I even think about it. You, I go to places where I used to use cash, like whatever, the, the Fremont market or something. Oh, you got to have cash. These are little vendors that just drove in from the farm. They're not going to, and sure enough, they all have square plugged into their phone and you just run your credit card. Everybody takes Venmo now. Yeah. And Venmo. I sold stuff at a yard sale this summer. Take Venmo. I'm like, uh, yeah, I think so. I think so. And I'm fumbling <laughs> with my phone. <laughs> Some places just feel more cashy, though, right? Like 19 yeah. cent Dick's Burgers. You don't want to be throwing in a card for a 19 cent Dick's Burger. Does Dixie, does Dick's accept cards? They do. Yeah. They do. Dix was they one do. of the last holdouts, though, yeah. for cards, man. They were cash only for the longest time. But yeah. yeah, now they take cards. But seriously, you know, you wanted to save a couple of cents on gas at Arco, you pay cash there. Flower ladies in the parking lot on your way out of the Arco, cash. 
there, yeah. right? Feels very cashy situation. Farmer's market, weed store, absolutely cash. It is very analog. It's got kind of this hip cachet cash does now <laughs> um, where, hey, look at me, I got a 20. You make change for that, pal? But I mean, look what tech is doing. It's it's. I pay for a beer at the baseball stadium with my palm because of Amazon's technology, you know. So I'm I'm sorry. Can you please, because <laughs> I am not familiar with this sort of cyborg technology. Can you please explain that to me? Well, Did they insert something into you? Your your biometric uh, palm uh, scan can be tied back to your. Your credit card essentially and they have little readers at the entrance to well the go stores and now concession stands at all three of the big stadiums in town um so if i make a fake cast of your hand uh, slosher <laughs> beers on kurt it won't look suspicious i'll just be dragging it around this, this got weird this got I weird know it, right if you want the cash, most of us still have to work, and three Seattle-area companies made it on the most recent Best Places to Work list. Glassdoor released the results of its 15th annual Employee Choice Awards, which ultimately ranks the best places to work in the U.S. Three Seattle-area businesses made the cut this year, business and technology consulting firm Slalom, Microsoft, and Avanod, an IT consulting company, and Microsoft Partners, so there's Microsoft twice on the list year. Here, All of these companies pitch their mission of improving the world through improving people's lives. And Kurt, maybe more interestingly, Costco, REI, and Zillow fell off the lists this year. No longer the best places to work. Yeah, I, I think that illustrates how fickle this could be. I mean, why would those three companies fall off? But I think that these these Glassdoor ratings and, and other uh, sites that do these ratings are... Um, I would take them with a grain of salt. Every every company sort of champions when they land at the top of one of these lists, but you don't hear much from them when they fall off. That's for sure. Yeah, I'm a little suspect of lists like this, right? But this much is true. Since the pandemic, a lot has changed about our working environment and what people expect from their employers. So, Geraldine, I wonder if that is really part of the shift is the pandemic and what we expect I mean, yeah, if you have to wear real clothes to work, that's going to knock you down a couple pegs. Uh, I mean, I've been I've been working from home pre-pandemic, so I really want to see the list of best places to work if you are self-employed. And I would like to nominate myself for that list because... <laughs> well, you know, you are making a joke, but the freelance world has grown since the pandemic, right? People are no longer deciding that office life is the only life. And freelancers have always been out there, but it seems like the dialogue and the conversation about how to be a good freelancer, how to be a, um, a successful freelancer has really exploded over the past couple of years. So I think it, I think it's not strange anymore to be mm -hmm. like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm at home that day. I'm commuting from home. I'm working from here. I'm doing whatever. People don't, People don't respond to it in that sort of strange, like, oh, you're, you're a remote worker. How unusual. It, it doesn't have that sort of, uh, I won't say stigma, but it, it doesn't have that sort of air about it anymore. Well, and Bloomberg asked experts about 
the top five things that employees wanted out of their workplaces, and remote work was at the top of the list, followed by flexibility, sustainable work-life balance, fair compensation, and job security. Well, that just sounds like, yeah, what everybody wants, for sure, for sure. I wonder, though, if younger workers are really primarily driving these new labor fights that we see playing out here, because I'll just use myself as an example. I think that as an older worker who spent a ton of her career giving everything to her career, I am a cautionary tale for younger workers. They look at people like me and they see burnout, right? They see people who have made too many sacrifices, in their opinion, for the work. And the trade-offs are ones that they are not necessarily willing to make. I had a boss uh, once who used to, we'd have a conversation she would overhear where we'd be like, what do you think, four tens? Would that be, is that something you'd be into, working four tens? And she would kind of huff and go, I wish I could work five tens under the <laughs> sort of the guise of like, she's probably working six tens or maybe seven, and we should all be so lucky to get our 40-hour uh, week. You know, I think this is an interesting week and an interesting time as companies are starting to get a little frustrated that workers aren't rushing back. And Starbucks, Howard Schultz came out and said, it's time. We want you here three days a week. We tried to give you the option of coming in one day a week. They're, they have badging data that shows that workers weren't doing that. And he called it inherently unfair that the people who actually make your drinks in their stores have had to be there for the last three years. And it's time for corporate workers to return to the, to the HQ. Fascinating. Um, he thinks it's part of their culture, and uh, so that's starting. So big companies with big uh, desire to see people in person to fill those offices they pay for. So many interesting shifts in the workforce. And yeah, we can look at these major companies, right? Microsoft now giving employees unlimited time off, which is so fascinating to me, right? Because the first thing my son said, because I said, hey, to my 17-year-old, Microsoft's given their U.S. employees unlimited time off. And he looked at me and said, is anybody ever going to work? To him, he's like, hey, I'd never have to go in. But of course, as a working adult in this world, I see the completely opposite impact. I would never take a day off. Yeah, I was I was actually talking to some former Microsofties last night about this whole unlimited time off. And they were like, no, this is an anti-benefit because... Mm -hmm. You don't have the guaranteed time. And so what you have to do is negotiate the time that you want off with your immediate manager, you know, with your team. And that means that you have to advocate for yourself and you have to be in a position where you can do that. So more vulnerable groups, more vulnerable employees are not able to do that. They can have that weaponized against them. Uh, they're less likely to take even what would normally be the minimum amount of time off. It actually becomes what is known as an anti-benefit. It's one of those PR moves that seems like a great thing and uh, is actually terrible. I think in an equitable, well-run company, right, you might see that as, as autonomy as an employee, right? Maybe that's the goal is to give employees a little more autonomy, but that gets real mixed up in workplace culture, right? Yeah, like I have, um, I'm self-employed and I have unlimited time off, um, <laughs> which is pretty cool. I have to negotiate it with myself and sometimes I'm really bad about it, but for the most part, it's been working out fine. So yeah, that joke didn't land. That was supposed to be <laughs> that was. I liked it. 
I like a good solid four to six weeks a year. How's that sound? Yeah, and and again, if that time is given to you, it's almost like, here, take this time. Can we just be like France? Can we just take August off collectively as a country? I'm down. I'm down. Well, as we've been discussing, work-life balance is important. So have a good weekend, you two. Thanks to my guest, Kurt Slosher, writer and editor for GeekWire, and Geraldine DeReuter, founder of the blog, The Everywhereist. Really appreciate you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks for listening to Seattle Now. Brandy Fullwood produced today's show. The show is also produced by Caroline Chamberlain Gomez, Claire McGrain, Jenny Cecilmore, and Vaughn Jones. Matt Jorgensen does our theme music. Seattle Now and KUOW Public Radio are members of the NPR Network. It's an independent coalition of public media podcasters. You can find more shows in the network wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Patricia Murphy. See you Monday. 